good evening, everyone. It's Radio and Dog Ears, the podcast. I'm your host, Paul Boss, on a beautiful, hot August night, as Neil Diamond said. Except it's a pretty cool June night. I see Venus in the distance. And I have Jane, who just came up here to say hello. Hey, Janie, can you say hello? Hello. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Happy to be with you all. It's been a moment. Glad to be out here in the Mank Ave, uh, able to talk about music. Um, it's been a crazy two months, um, but I feel, you know, as a white, cisgendered male of Anglo-Saxon descent, whose church is probably considered part of the evangelical movement, I feel entitled, I mean qualified, to speak to you all about the events of the past few months. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) I don't know where to go after that great joke. Anyways, um, we actually are going to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter later during this podcast. But first, I just want to catch up on some housekeeping. First of all, some listener mail. Um, I've been inundated with mail from all of the listeners to... Radio Dog Ears, which now is not only available on Anchor FM, your number one spot for podcasts, but also Spotify and a little thing called Apple iTunes or podcasts. I don't know what it's called. Someone tell me what it's called. Um, so ever since that happened, I mean, the wheels have really been turning and looks like I'm going to uh, be moving on from my day job, if you know what I mean. I'm getting fired because I'm thinking about this podcast too much. Um, But yeah, I've gotten some listener mail, metaphorically. So the first letter comes from Daniel in Austin. And Daniel in Austin says, Paul, thank you for your insightful episode on Zampana. It's come to mind, that's not what he wrote. He said, it has come to my mind that Zampano bears a resemblance to the band The Shins. What are your thoughts? Signed, Daniel and Austin, as I already mentioned. Um, Daniel, that's an astute observation. As you probably knew, Zampano and The Shins were in fact on the same label. The Shins are no longer on Sub Pop, but they were originally on Sub Pop. And I do think there is a resemblance between the two bands. Um, they both have some power pop influences and some of those back rack influences that we discussed with respect to Zampano. And I think Carl Newman and James Mercer have similar voices. I do think James Mercer's voice is probably the more like traditionally kind of beautiful voice. I mean, I just think his voice is like a knockout. Um, particularly... Um, like in the third and fourth Shins albums where he really allowed himself to just, really the third, where he just allowed himself to just belt, you know, because he was a rock star. Well, I hear a crazy sound outside. Maybe you heard that. Um, I hope that's coming through. Uh, The next letter comes from Adam in Reseda. Adam writes, Paul, thank you for your provocative episode on Zampano. Wow. Um, Paul, explain something to me. I enjoy listening to Zampano, 
but I don't particularly like the new pornographers. Can you describe the difference between those two bands, which might result in my differing opinions? Love, Adam and Rosita. Well, thank you, Adam, uh, for your, for your uh, letter, your metaphorical letter. Um, first of all, you should like the new pornographers. They're a great band. Probably, in total, better than Zampano. Um, I don't know precisely my metrics for making that grand determination. But um, I, here's what I think. And this is sort of targeted to Adam, but I think it's targeted to people in general. There's a couple of things that I really think distinguish new pornographers from Zampano. First of all, Carl Newman's not the only uh, songwriter in new pornographers. Um, Dan Behar and... Well, really, Dan Behar is the only other one, I guess. Uh, Nico Case sings, and Catherine Calder sing lead occasionally. But um, Dan Behar is really the only songwriter. But that's not the difference that I think you're pointing to. I think New Pornographers is sort of undistilled Carl Newman, even though there's more cooks in the kitchen. It's really him just confidently writing unabashed pop songs. So that's a big difference. Also, and again, this is more targeted to our reader, uh, our reader, our writer, Adam and Rosita. But um, pop music is, it's a package. You know, I mean, rarely, and I'm including me in this, rarely do we like bands in the abstract. Like, or not even in the abstract, just solely based on their musical output. It is somehow our perception of bands and how we like them and how we appreciate them or don't like them is somehow influenced by their presentation, by their live show, by their press shots, just by their general disposition, by their attitude and interviews. All that stuff, I think, kind of creates a mystique around a band. Or if not a mystique, like just a sort of a, a public persona that informs their music. And new pornographers just forever have always had like pretty terrible album covers, pretty terrible press shots. They're a super dorky looking band, except for Nico Case and Dan Behar. Um, and they just are not, they're not cool. They've never been a cool band. The coolest thing about them is that they're on Matador Records. And that... Um, that didn't validate them for me, frankly, because I liked them before they were a Matador. But um, I shouldn't say that that's not what got me into them by any means. But it did, I guess, in a certain sense, validate them. Or at least I thought, oh, I, yeah, I'm not the only one who likes these guys. But uh, they're dorks. And maybe that has something to do with it. Not saying that uh, to include that in your perception or judgment of band is shallow at all. I think everyone does that to a certain degree. Um, but uh, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. It, you know. You know what it's like? It's like Ockerville River. I think they're probably objectively like a fine band, but I've always found them so dorky that I just can't get into them. Same sort of with like the hold steady, just like the overwhelmingly earnestness the overwhelming earnestness of it all. Um, just can't really get into them. So maybe you have that sort of uh, hang up with the new pornographers. 
So that's been listener mail. Um, I was thinking about saying today while I was running, I was listening to the new Dua Lipa album, which I've listened to a fair amount while running this summer, really only while running, except when I was cleaning up tonight for the first time. It's the first time I listened to it while cleaning up. I was hoping uh, my daughters would like it, and they kind of more interested in what they were doing at the time. But um, I had a weird sort of thought where I was listening to the second song of the album, whose name I'm forgetting right now. I'm going to stop real quickly. Okay, I'm back through the magic of GarageBand technology. Um, it is Don't Start Now. Is that right? Now I just like forgot it after just looking it up a moment ago. Don't Start Now. Yeah. And uh, I'd be a great A&R guy, for the record, because I heard that song while running tonight, and I was like, I've heard this song now five or six times. This is a hit. they got to release this song as a single. It's going to be the song of the summer. And uh, when I got home and took my traditional post-run bowel movement on my phone, I looked up Don't Start Now, and it already is a hit single. So I was right. Um... Anyways, the thought I had, though, aside from just reflecting on how great an A&R man I would be, A&R person, I guess, in this day and age, um, was how bummed I am that I'm not going to hear that like blaring from a speaker at Dodger Stadium this summer. Because inevitably, like between innings or as a walk-up song, you would hear a song just like that. Like That's, that's certainly the type of hit that ultimately would be played really loudly at Dodger Stadium. Man, big-ass bug right here. Get away from me. Ah! And um, that bummed me out. And then I started thinking that Major League Baseball and ESPN and all the other people that broadcast Major League Baseball should really make walk-up songs a more prominent part of their broadcast this year because there's just gonna be, it's just going to be a different vibe with, with fans not in the stands and... I just think it'd be really great, and there could be a lot of partnerships that would probably turn into like sorted business deals between Major League Baseball and you know all the record labels, and then you'd have like the cool indie player who you know does like a Titus Andronicus song, and then there's uh you know which I'm being a little uh, little sarcastic. That would be I you know I guess that would be cool. I would probably find that cool, ultimately. Um, and then you'd have, like, uh, you know, players that you don't expect to drop. Like, you'd have, like, a um, a really uh, bookish catcher come to the plate to, like, uh, you know, uh, like a, a Lil' Kim song or something, like something that's kind of sort of at odds with their personality. Which I, I like that idea of making that a more prominent part of the broadcast. So if you've got Major League Baseball's ear, you know, drop them a line. You know, MLB at MLB.com. I think that's their email address. You can just send them an email if they, if they accept your email. Um, I'm going to take a drink real quickly. Okay, was there anything else I wanted to kind of touch on during... Oh, yeah, there's one more thing I want to touch on during this sort of intro. By the way, you notice... You may notice for long-time listeners, I'm a little bit looser this time. I'm trying out a more loose persona on this podcast, just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze with the boys and girls, you know, in the garage. 
Um, so uh, as part of this loose introduction, I'm going to um, just allude briefly to uh, probably the most significant thing in my musical life over the past six months, which is sort of a ceaseless obsession with the band R.E.M. Started around January, maybe December of 2019. I don't think so, though. I really think it was January. And it's just sort of maintained for six months. And it's been aided by that Are You Talking R.E.M. Remy podcast, which I very much enjoy despite um, some frustrations with some of the analysis when there is analysis. Um, and it's also just been, you know, aided by the fact that I have Spotify and I can listen to all their albums at will. And I've really built up my vinyl collection of theirs. And um, I just, you know, can kind of listen at will nowadays. And uh, I've enjoyed going through the records. And I, and I guess the reason I bring it up is uh, last night I, created an REM playlist. You can find it on the official Radio and Dog Ears Spotify account. That's Soapy the Dog, S-O-A-P-Y the Dog. It's an REM playlist, and it's a good place for REM fans or REM people who are knowledgeable about REM but are ready to take the next step. If you are a passive sort of REM listener or not familiar there's really no better place to start than Eponymous, um, which is the collection of their greatest hits from when they were on IRS Records. And then there's a two-disc double. Uh, two-disc double. There's a double album that came out, I think, in 2011, another greatest hits, that collects uh, songs from both IRS and Warner Brothers. Um, and um, that's why we should start. But if you get beyond that, you should check out my collection. Now, my collection is by no means like a deep dive. I definitely have a lot of hits on there. But what I don't include is just some songs that are great, and I love them, and I will, fall, I will forever love them. But for one, re- one man, that's amazing. I'm just going to keep that. For one reason or another, I just uh, didn't include. Likely because I'm tired of hearing them, or I just feel like it's too. it's just too trite to put Everything Hurts on an R.E.M. 20-song compilation assembled by a fan. That said, now that I mentioned that, I feel like a, a fool for not putting that song in there. It's one of their best songs ever. I put its uh, slightly weirder cousin, Strange Currencies, from Monster. But you can check that out. You can also check out the playlist from uh, the last two Radio and Dog Years episodes. Um, so... We're now going to transition to the meat of the program. Um, let's have a little musical interlude to set the mood on here, on here. Radio and dog year. Ready, set, go, man, go. I got a gal that I love, so I'm ready. Radio and dog ears, of course, the great Little Richard, rest in peace. 
So that is the song Ready Teddy off of his debut record. Here's Little Richard. Uh, Little Richard died on May 9th, 2020. And it was a sad day. Um, Little Richard was born Richard Wayne Penniman, and he's one of the few remaining original rockers. Um, I think Jerry Lee Lewis is still alive, uh, but there's very few left. Um, Little Richard, for a long time, lived on the Hyatt on Sunset in West Hollywood. And one of my favorite things that came out of the remembrances uh, after he died was from like all these indie rockers and other people who have no connection to the advent of rock and roll telling stories about being at the Hyatt and Sunset, like staying there because they were touring or because they were recording nearby and their interactions with Little Richard and how he was so enthusiastic about meeting them. And I think I heard, I heard one definitely from Norman Blake of Teenage Fan Club and perhaps Evan Dando and just really funny. And, and those stories really highlighted the fact that he was a true eccentric and kind of defined the, uh, the sort of eccentricity. Is that the way you say that word? I'm going to look that up right now because it's never too late to learn. Yes, eccentricity. Paul, don't doubt yourself. You're smart. Um, sort of. And, um, yeah, and defined to a certain degree like the androgyny that, or didn't define it, but sort of was the proto-androgynous male um, that would later be, you know, exploited by Mick Jagger and David Bowie, Prince, others. Um, so Little Richard's song served as a template for rock and roll. He was the er rock and roller. And this particular song, Ready Teddy, was covered by Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, and others. Um, and his writing obviously, you know, influenced very directly, you know, the biggest bands of the 60s, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. Um, and it was frequently, you know, not just name-checked, by those bands, but those bands expressly said, you know, we're not for Little Richard, we would not be here. Um, and, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of like the style of rock and roll, Little Richard's influence was not merely musical, it was stylistic. It was in his dress, it was in his performance. Um, he performed with the band and with joy. And uh, he literally could not help but scream. He had that sort of like, the woo, I'm not going to do it. Um, even Even saying the woo i just feel foolish i feel like a, i feel like a uh like just a like some clinical music snob but he couldn't help but scream when he sang his songs um you know a rock and roll has kind of been mythologized to be like this force in the 50s that was so strong that it made people dance and gyrate and you know uh have sex or even worse you know slow dance that's like an old baptist joke that I've also heard as a Church of Christ joke, um, against their will. I mean, everyone kind of just doing these things despite their best efforts. And, and I, th I think that, again, it's, it's a myth. I, I don't think rock and roll does that. I don't know if it ever did. But I think Little Richard's performances, including Elvis's, of course, are the mythology, or the foundation on which that mythology was built. Um, and, you know, Little Richard is funny, too, because he, he played, particularly, like, starting in the late 60s, when he started doing a residency in Vegas. He was one of the first to do that. Um, 
he kind of on one end of the spectrum was this, you know, incredibly flirtatious, innuendo-driven performer um, who was, you know, uh, he didn't care if you were a male or a female or, or the third, you know, he was going for you. And then on the other end, he was like this total evangelical, you know, exhorting, you know, uh, the Lord Jesus, you know, on stage and having altar calls and, you know, just uh, praising God. Um, you know, he contained multitudes, as has uh, kind of been said about him and others. Um, my dad uh, was a lawyer, and his law firm did some legal work for Little Richard. It was tax-related. Uh, because my dad was a tax attorney. I, he, uh, the firm did other stuff as well, but my dad knew about it because it was in his department. And um, my dad was not the partner directly dealing with him. It was another partner who was this really straight-laced gay guy. And um, my dad told me that he was so uncomfortable with Little Richard because... Little Richard would just like exclaim, praise Jesus nonstop and hallelujah during their meetings. And it just always has tickled me that that was what made that particular lawyer uncomfortable. I mean, frankly, that would have made me uncomfortable as well. But um, uh, yeah, I just, I've always found that really amusing. And I've always just found that really endearing that Little Richard was the same person in the law office that he was on stage. Um, but I don't, I don't want to talk about little Richard, uh, exclusively. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really happy to spend some moments reflecting on his life. Um, but when he died, one of the first things I thought of was that the sad reality that in Los Angeles on the day of his death, there was not one FM station that could play a little Richard song, play one of his hits without totally abandoning its station format. To be clear, until recently, L.A. had not had an oldies, for lack of a better word, or early rock and roll, soul, R&B station for many years. Uh, around 2017, K-Surf, 1260 AM, debuted, and now there is finally an early rock and roll station on the air. Although it is now, K-Surf itself is drifting into more like late 60s, early to mid 70s fare. But we'll talk about K-Surf a little bit more uh, in a bit. But, of course, this hasn't always been the case. I mean, growing up, I listened to K-Earth 101 almost exclusively. Um, and uh, K-Earth was, was one of many oldie stations in L.A. There was KODJ or KDOG. It was 93.1. It's either KDOJ or KODJ. I'm not going to look it up. I'm just going to let that linger. And, and many others. Um, but K-Earth... Um, just to concentrate on care, it concentrated on the 60s. And it really concentrated on basically, or essentially, 63 to about 68. But it definitely dipped into the 50s. You would certainly hear Elvis. You would hear Little Richard. You would hear Chuck Berry. You'd hear Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley. And then occasionally it would edge into the early 70s. Really the, the closest thing you'd get, uh, sorry, the latest thing you'd get would be like Crocodile Rock. Elton John, which is, in in a sense, sort of a tribute to, you know, songs of the 60s. 
but there was very little played on K Earth that could be classified as classic rock, uh, or that would be classified as classic rock. It was an oldie station. So I miss hearing early rock and roll and oldies. And, and let's define our terms for a moment. I mean, when I talk about oldies and early rock and roll, I'm really talking about songs or pop, popular music um, from 1955, 56 to 1968. I think that's fair. Um, early Doors, I think, is oldies, but later era Doors is not. Credence is right on the edge. I think Credence probably is can be played on a golden era of rock and roll station without making classic rock, although it certainly is, I think, also classic rock. It's one of those bands. Um, popular music from the mid-50s, late-50s, early-60s is a little bit of a misnomer because there was like Paul Anka and that sort of stuff, and that was not played on you know, oldie stations. It really is like early rock and roll, and then... Um, when rock and roll, or early rock and roll, R&B, soul, and doo-wop as well. Um, even though their early rock and roll and doo-wop basically coexisted, um, I really think of them as being ultimately part of the same broader genre. So why do I miss oldies radio? Why do I miss, you know, early rock and roll radio? But let's start with rock and roll. Start with oldies. Um, you, it, might, it may not be surprising to hear from me that, I mean, I believe rock and roll um, in all of its iterations, you know, R&B, soul, surf, um, is America's greatest cultural contribution of the last century. And what I'm talking about is, of course, there was like, there's been great American film and great American painting and you know all sorts of great podcasts um but i mean i think rock and roll and i think also because it descends from another american art form you know the blues and to a lesser degree jazz is something that's distinctly american and that i think that i think and its cultural impact makes it the greatest american cultural contribution of the last century so i just think there's something to be said about keeping that alive and part of the zeitgeist. You know, there's early, that early era of rock and roll, which is, um, you know, the, the earliest moments of America's defining cultural contribution. Another point, early rock and roll in all of its iterations is the very basis, the foundation of pop music today. It's how that song craft was developed. And of course, it did not exist in a vacuum it was building on you know the blues uh, and building on other popular song you know like torch songs and um you know other songs that other popular songs that preceded it but uh really the song craft that was developed in the 60s is what pop music continues to be built on today um and by pop music I'm, again i'm using the term incredibly broadly um, I think this is getting now a little bit more subjective now. I mean, obviously, all these points are, you can quibble with them. You can even argue with them. This point is a little bit more subjective, but I just think from a aesthetic perspective, that era of rock and roll is unimpeachable. 
it will forever be remembered as a golden era of music. Um, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Kinks, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye. I mean, the list really goes on and on of artists whose contributions are, you know, at the, you cannot calculate their influence. But, but thinking about them in terms of their influence is actually getting away from the point I was making, which is in and of themselves, they are just aesthetically pleasing, you know, in a way a Monet painting is. You don't need to even think about how it impacted the culture. You can just appreciate it in and of itself. One thing I've, I've likened it to in the past is it's sort of like French toast because all these old rock and roll songs, or at least people of you know my vintage, that's a douchey, dorky thing to say, uh, people of my age, my generation, you know, know a lot of these songs. You know, um, I mean, I'm not telling you today about artists that you're unfamiliar with, and I'm not going to be getting you hip to songs that you're not familiar with. That said, there are some you know, great oldies songs that exist sort of old, only in an oldies format and are going to be lost to the sands of time if we don't bring back the appreciation of early rock and roll. That said, a lot of these songs we all know, but that doesn't diminish my appreciation for them. It's sort of like French toast. Like, I've had French toast a million times, and I will have it a million times more, and I will never get tired of it because it's perfect. Even though... Someone's probably come up with, you know, some, you know, truffle-infused French toast and, you know, different variations on it and, you know, um, some, you know, incredible new breakfast food. This analogy is really kind of falling apart. Um, but, like, even all that stuff, even though all that stuff is likely to happen and has happened in the realm of breakfast food, <laughs> I still really love French toast. And the same thing goes for these early rock and roll songs. I mean, I, I just never tire of them. And I don't think it's purely nostalgia. I really do not believe it's purely nostalgia. I think it's something intrinsic in the songs themselves. Um, but I guess, I, I guess, I mean, of course, again, I, I, I noted that this is a subjective point, and it is subjective. But I, I really do think there is something um, sort of just... Uh, Ether not ethereal, what's the word I'm looking for? A transcendent about this music. Okay, let's move on. Oldies are diverse, particularly in a way classic rock is not diverse. I know I'm kind of pitting oldies against classic rock. I guess I'm doing that because there still are classic rock stations, and I sort of resent it, even though I, even though I really love a lot of classic rock. I mean, I, yeah, I love classic rock, of course. But oldies are diverse in a way that classic rock is not. Okay, so let's just concentrate on black artists, which I think is, again, appropriate given the death of Little Richard and uh, the moment we're having nationally where we're really coming to grips with systemic racism. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, The Supremes, including Diana Ross, Mary Wells, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell, Ike and Tina Turner, The Four Tops, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, Wilson Pickett, the Isley Brothers, the Marvelettes. And to say nothing of all the doo groups, which were predominantly black. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And those songs, when I was growing up, were regularly, songs by those artists were regularly in rotation. They were a 
preeminent part of the rotation of classic rock radio. Excuse me, not classic rock, early rock and roll, oldies radio. And I was doing some you know, research at classic rock playlists, and they're incredibly you know, uh, monochromatic and male. So you may hear some Jimi Hendrix on classic rock, maybe. But Jimi Hendrix is kind of on the border of classic rock and, and oldies, although I really think he is more classic rock in presentation and style. But you may hear some Jimi Hendrix. You may hear some like Allman Brothers who have or had black members. But very few bands with, with solely black members or even you know a few black members and very few female-fronted bands. You'll hear Hart. You may hear Pat Benatar. Um, like, I don't know, like Susie Quattro. I mean, uh, you're not going to hear The Runaways. I mean, that's, that's too punk rock. Um, it, classic rock is very white and male-dominated. And there's like this sort of machismo and bullheadedness, this lustiness, this domineering sort of aspect to classic rock. Not all of it. Again, I'm painting with a broad brush, but... And that's and that I think is you definitely have some problematic, you know, early rock and roll songs. Um, no doubt about it. I'm not going to act as if you know classic rock is uh, you know the bad guy and it it kind of ruined innocent old early rock and roll. But um, and innocence, I guess, in and of itself can be problematic. But I mean, early rock and roll has. You know, a lot of gender equity in terms of who's performing, not necessarily who's collecting the royalties. A lot of racial equity in terms of who's performing. Again, not necessarily in terms of who's creating, uh, collecting the royalties. But there's a lot more equity there. There's a, a lot more sentimentality, a lot more sentimentality, a lot more sweetness. Um, there's love songs, and there's lust, like you hear in classic rock. But it's not as gross as classic rock lust. It's more kind of little Richard lust, kind of like this, not like leering sexual predator lust, but sort of just kind of, I'm going to jump out of my skin because I want you so bad sort of lust. Uh, I don't know. Is that better? I don't know. But I think there's a diversity to, to oldies, which is really important and is being lost because we are not listening to oldies. Okay, why radio? Why is radio an important part of this, this equation? Okay, so radio has a live curator uh, as opposed to, for example, a Spotify playlist. It's unpredictable. Uh, a DJ, even a remote DJ, you know, can respond to moments in real time, like the death of Little Richard. Radio is also communal. It's happening in real time. You know, very few moments nowadays are experienced at the same time together, uh, particularly, you know, nowadays with COVID-19, with live sports being on the shelf. You know, there's no appointment viewing. Radio offers that unique opportunity, you know, whether you're at home or most likely in L.A. in the car or elsewhere, you can tap into a live moment that is happening right then with someone else. Um, I mean, one of the great, like, phenomena that is, you know, Increasingly rare in LA is driving down the street with your windows down and you pull up next to a car and you realize they're listening to the same radio station. Or 
you hear what they're listening to and you scan the radio station to find this song that they're listening to because it's better than the song you're listening to. Those sort of communal moments are important. I mean, I think it's important to share these things together to create like a cultural vocabulary that we all share. I mean, there's definitely something to be said for, for niche culture. And I, I mean, I love the listening opportunities and the deep dives that Spotify and you know, free form internet radio like WFMU, which I'm a you know, proud supporter of, and more recently Amateurism Radio, where I listen to listener Adam all the time and other people. I, I love those sorts of deep dives. But I also like I also like um, radio that is created for the masses for us all to have a shared cultural language. Um, you know, I mean, I think in the 80s going up, you could start singing My Girl and people would know the lyrics. I'm trying to think of songs that have come out in the last 20 years where you could start singing every one of the lyrics. I mean, certainly there are songs. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are songs. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm now kind of uh, backing away from that argument because someone's going to say like Despacito or something or something else or Taylor Swift songs. But there's certainly not as many. And, um, and yeah, I just, that communal experience of radio, I think is, is, is so important and it's so impactful to me. Also, radio has greater reach. It's, it's democratic. Now, obviously radio does not have greater reach than the internet, although, you know, terrestrial radio stations can be broadcast on the internet. But I mean greater reach in the sense that it's democratic. Like, you don't have to have data on your phone to listen to the radio. You don't need to have a computer to listen to the radio. Although you can. Uh, you need an antenna. You need a radio. Which, now that I say this, maybe radio is actually less available than I was thinking because not many people have radios nowadays, although I imagine that you can still buy one. But Los Angeles, I mean, certainly there are a number of people who do not commute by car and don't drive cars. And I don't mean to leave those people out by any means. But there is a substantial number of people who every day commute by car and have at their disposal a radio. And to me, that is like this great equalizer. This, this, it makes radio this democratic force you know, that everyone can have access to, um, you know, in, in a way that is unique. And it's unlike satellite radio, which you have to pay for and, you know, also sounds crummy. I mean, so satellite radio, I mean, could, I guess, fulfill to a certain degree, you know, the aims of terrestrial radio that I'm talking about. But again, my main issues with satellite radio are it sounds like crap, particularly compared to like the FM broadband. I mean, FM sounds amazing. And, um, and it's not, you have to pay for it. I mean, it's, it's certainly more out of reach than internet radio. Um, so I want to circle back now to talking about 1260 K-Surf. So a listener from Adam, actually, third time I've mentioned him, that's a little bit embarrassing, um, got me a K-Surf bumper sticker, which I really appreciate. I'm, I've really been debating putting it on my car. I've gotten some pushback from um, the original owner of the car, who I live with and married. But um, uh, K-Surf is on 1260 AM in LA. It's been around since about 2017. And initially, it was a commercial free station and that was done as a gratuitous gesture by its owner Saul Levine 
Saul Levine is an L.A. radio legend. He's been in the radio game in L.A. for many, many decades. And his greatest success is in the last 20 years, owning L.A.'s own, only, owning L.A.'s only country radio station, 105.1. And uh, Saul Levine, I mean, I think, I've heard sort of metrics saying that 105.1 is actually the biggest country station in the nation in terms of uh, listenership, which is pretty astounding given that it's Los Angeles and not thought of as a traditional country market. But Saul Levine parlayed that success with Go Country into other ventures, including 1260 AM, which he set up basically as just a gift to Los Angeles. I'm going to set up an oldie station because this is music I love and I want to share it with you. And I'm even going to do it in a commercial-free way. Well, 1260 is not entirely commercial-free anymore. And also, it's the pressures of the market have kind of started shifting it again more towards late 60s, early 70s music, which is disappointing to me. But um, I'm both totally thrilled that K-Surf exists, and I'm also petrified, to put, to put it too strongly, that it is the only oldie station we have and that it's, it's solely due to the beneficence of Saul Levine. I really hope that you know, radio operators nowadays, and there's so few now because of consolidation, and there's very few DJs nowadays because of just aggregators that play music, um, I really hope that one of those behemoths you know, listens to this podcast and very seriously considers uh, you know, the points I'm making here. And this is just, you know, a few highlights. Obviously, there's a number of other reasons I think that Oldies Radio is valuable and should be invested in by business and other people alike. I mean, there are other, there are places on LA Terrestrial Radio to hear Oldies other than K-Surf, but they are fleeting. There are occasional Oldies shows, for example, on KXLU. Uh, 88.9, which is LMU station. There's also occasional oldie shows on 89.3, uh, which I believe is Cal State Northridge's station. Um, maybe that's 88.5. I forget. I don't listen to that station all that much, even though I've heard good things about it. But for both those stations, that is not their primary genre. And also, on both those stations, and this is very valid and valuable, and I, and I love this, both those stations play sort of more like ephemera from the era and, you know, album tracks and bargain bin stuff and, you know, lesser known artists. And again, that's incredibly valuable, but that's not developing like the cultural sort of language that Oldies Radio created for me, you know, um, knowing the hits and knowing the one hit wonders and building my musical vocabulary that way, and, and sharing that with the broader public. I mean, I could talk to a music nerd about a Kim Fowley song I heard on KXLU, but I can talk to, or I could talk to anyone a long time ago about, you know, any number of four top songs, um, or, or not talk to, really talk to is the wrong way to describe this. I could sing those songs with them. We could listen to them and enjoy them together as songs that we both loved, and, I, and that's decreasing. Um, so that's my polemic, my diatribe for this podcast on Oldies Radio. Um, you should listen to K-Surf. 
You can listen to it online, and it's not the AM frequency. It sounds better. Although, I mean, there is something to be said for listening to an AM. It, it really does put you in, like, the, the, the mindset of, like, American graffiti and sort of, you know, the earliest days of rock and roll before FM was in, even a thing. But listen to K-Surf and uh, support, you know, oldies, musicians. Um, they are oldies but goodies, as I believe uh, the great... Um, oh boy, I'm blanking on his name. Who coined the term oldie but goodies? Oldies but goodies. I'm looking it up right now. Art LeBeau. Art LeBeau, of course. How, how foolish of me. Um, I mean, I could have done this whole podcast about Art LeBeau and the, the work he's done to uh, bring early rock and roll to the masses throughout his career which continues today in his 90s. I mean, I had his oldies but goodies compilations when I was a kid. Um, yeah, so, our, so I mean, that's another example of a disc jockey in an instance where oldies are still being played on the radio, but again, intermittently. And also, Art LeBeau's oldies are a, a particular subgenre. It's kind of like lowrider classics. I, I think that's kind of what people refer to them as. Sort of like a mixture of oldies with Songs that are, you know, particularly loved by, you know, predominantly Hispanic audiences like Selena and, you know, some other artists and, you know, a lot of like Brinson Wood. Um, and that's, it's the bomb. It is great, great stuff. Um, and that now I'm kind of, I'm on its side. Anyways, you know, join this, join this fight with me. You know, let's, let's get, let's get an FM oldie station in LA and let's listen to it together and let's revisit the greatness of the foundations and Jerry and the pacemakers and the animals and the young rascals and all those bands so I'm going to leave you with a uh, one of my favorite oldies a song that certainly was introduced to me on K-Earth, and a song that I fear uh, we, we risk losing uh, because there's no place on the radio for people to hear it, and it's just going to end up being a dusty song on Spotify that no one listens to. So this is Lou Christie with Lightning Strikes on Radio and Dog Years. Thanks for listening. I will be back sooner than you expect. Hope everyone's doing well. You gotta understand You're old enough to know the makings of a man Listen to me, baby, it's hard to settle down Am I asking too much for you to stick around? Every boy wants a girl He can trust to the very end Baby, that's you Won't you wait?